Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm joined by Demas Salabarius. Demas is founder and co-pastor of Infinity Bible Church in the Bronx, New York. Demas is an evangelist at heart. He's preached on every continent except Antarctica. He's ministered in some very dangerous places, including smuggling Bibles to the persecuted church in China, training and equipping pastors in Kenya, and ministering to gangs in the Bronx. Pastor Demas' first book, Street God, was released earlier. So we're going to talk to him about a few different topics. One, about racial strife and racial reconciliation in America's cities and how the church can lead on that effort. Uh, Also about pro-life issues. Demas has an interesting story that he was almost uh, aborted uh, as a baby, and thankfully wasn't, and and how that has impacted his pro-life views. And also just talk about ministry in New York City. It's been said that there's a renaissance of evangelical uh, witness uh, in New York City, and he's going to share about what that is like. Before we begin with Demas, however, I want to remind you of Light Magazine, which is an important new resource from ERLC. This winter issue is here. It's available, and it's on the sanctity of human life and has some very thoughtful reflections on the pro-life movement, some contributions from people like Karen Swallow Pryor, Mike Cosper, and many others. Uh, You can get Light Magazine for $10, the print edition delivered to your house, or you can read it for free online at erlc.com slash light, erlc.com slash light. So I encourage you to check out this valuable resource. But for now, let's join Demas Celebrarius. So I'm here with my friend, Pastor Demas uh, Salaberos. Uh, thanks for joining us here on the Way Home Podcast. Oh, man, it's so great to be on the way home. We're enjoying this. Well, I uh, appreciate you joining me, and uh, just, man, there's so much to talk about. Your story is just really incredible. Uh, you've got this new book out called Street God, where you kind of tell your story of going from being a New York City drug boss to uh, becoming uh, a pastor, uh, a follower of Christ, uh, working uh, in the same streets that you were just once a drug dealer. So uh, first, maybe you could just tell the audience at first your abbreviated version of your story. How did you go from, I guess, let's start way back in the beginning. Talk about your childhood and what kind of led you to a life of being a drug dealer yeah. in New York City. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a home in Queens, New York, which is middle-class community, beautiful manicured lawns. Mm. My father was a captain of correction and an Air Force guy. And, you know, my mother, she was a principal of the elementary school. But, um, you know, so they picked a really great school district to go to, predominantly white school. But going down the halls, um, a young man offered me a a mess tap, which is like, you know, looks like the size of a number two pencil. And um, so when he offered that, I said, you know, I didn't even believe it would work. So he was like, you got $3 like a cook. So we gave him $3. And when I popped the pill, it was like the hall started to wave about 20 minutes later. You're just feeling the weight of that. I said, you know what? I don't want to use it. He said, well, why don't you help me sell it? Mm. So I said, absolutely. You know, let's do that. So I started to sell mescaline and then from there, mm. you know, started to sell marijuana and from marijuana started to sell crack cocaine. And a lot of this happened because I saw the movie Scarface, which had such an impact on me that I used to say, man, why didn't he just quit? 
when he had all those millions, why did he keep going on to the point that he died? So in my heart, I said, I want to be a street god, which is I want to be the largest drug dealer in the nation. And I want to do that until the point of my, uh, you know, I get those big money bags and then I'll just quit. But many of us know, you know, it takes a lot to uh, to quit. That's one. And and uh, and I didn't know, but that lifestyle wasn't glamorous at all. I mean, other than the jewelry and the cars and the women, but the violence that was involved, the drug arrest, mm. all those things were terrible, Dan. What is it uh, about the drug trade that draws in young men? I mean, what what is it that is such a powerful magnet for men to to young men to be involved? I mean, I think one, particularly in the day and time of which I was dealing, because I came from a good home, mm-hmm. but I started to see other guys my age driving, you know, a brand new Cadillac, mm. uh, owning a moped at age, you know, 13, you know. So when you start to witness all these things happening around you, you're like, whoa, you know, I know my parents are telling me I had to wait till after college. And at that young age, that looked like, I mean, forever. So I said, what you're telling me is one thing, but what I'm seeing on the street is something else, that I can get that stuff right now. Mm. So that was a big pull. Then the power that goes along with it. I mean, I was like a celebrity. Mm. You know, rap artists would come to visit me. People would come to see me. You know, I would be walking around well-known and established everywhere I went. So it was like there was this hood celebrity vibe that went along with it that I think pulls a lot of people in it. But the what, what a lot of people fail to realize is to become that street god status. Many people don't get to that point. So just like any other business, everybody could sell cookies for school, but there's one person that sold enough to win all the prizes. Mm-hmm. So in the same way in the illegal pharmaceutical business, mm-hmm. I own several pharmacies, which took a lot of work and and you know, mentoring on the demonic side to learn how to do all that. Mm. So um, that's why it's attractive to a lot of people. You're the king of the streets, a god of the streets, and then now you're a pastor and a speaker, and you're trying to get people out of the same lifestyle that you were in. How did that happen? I mean, one of the key people that, that came into my life was Dr. Tim Keller, mm. who's on my board now, was a mentor in my life. And, uh, you know, Tim Keller, he, he, he was one of the first people to read through Street God and, you know, and his wife and them, they helped work on the book. Mm. And, uh, and he said this was the best redemption story he has ever read. And, uh, and that just really blew us away. So years ago, he saw something in me. I was in a meeting. I had already converted. I didn't come to Christ through his ministry, but his ministry is the ones that helped me to become a pastor. And he said, you got to go to seminary. You got to get this education under your belt. We want to step in with you, and we want to help send you back into this area in which you came from to reach more people. And uh, so we went in, and we've been winning a lot of people to Christ all the time. I mean, Josh McDowell read it. He was like, Demos, he was like, this is the cross in the switchblade for this generation. And what's so exciting is right now, this book is spreading all over jails, uh, spreading over universities. Um, you know, we get emails from all over about people coming to Christ from from this book. So, uh, so 
but we've just been totally, totally humbled uh, by some of the things God has been doing with this book. And we know, so to go back to your, your, your number one question, I was dealing, I was walking the streets, I was at this really high moment. And have you seen the movie War Room, Dan? Hmm. I have okay. not yet seen it. Uh, uh, all right, all right. Well, you got to see it. Well, the movie has this grandmother character in there that was a praying woman. In my story, I had three of them surround me. Mm. And from one prayer meeting, they shut down a gun smuggling operation from guns from the South to New York City. They shut down a marijuana operation from pounds of marijuana coming from Texas into Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and they shut down a crack empire. So I encourage people, when you read Street God, it will fire you up and give you the power to know that people like me at that moment were very reachable. Hmm. What a story. That's incredible. So now you are doing ministry. You go to seminary, you come back to do ministry, and uh, you're you're doing uh, ministry on the streets there in New York City. And one of the things you talk about, and you're speaking and you're writing in your books, that I think people should think through is how you were given a pardon, and how that really w- was really key to getting your life back in order. And and uh, maybe talk about how that really was helpful, obviously, for you and uh, setting your ministry, oh, sure. but also. Maybe speak to a little bit, a lot of people are talking about criminal justice reform, about trying to uh, reform the system and create it so that men can, young men can be rehabilitated rather than just kind of wasting away in prison. So maybe speak to, to those issues. I mean, you know, there was one time I did a, a, a period of time in, in jail. I got out with good intentions to do the right thing. Um, but the only job that was available to me at that age was working at White Castle. Mm. And when I worked really hard, and at the end of the week, I got a $75 check, mm. and I knew by selling drugs I was making $1,000 an hour. Mm. You know, I, uh, the reform went out the door, and I went back into the business. But when I came to Christ, when I finally met Jesus, and I understood the Scriptures, that I had to be a good citizen, that's when I came back to New York and turned myself in. I escaped from New York with handcuffs. I had to get the handcuffs cut and taken off. I escaped from custody. I had to dress like a woman and get on an Amtrak train to beat the the cops at all the different checkpoints. Mm. And when I got all the way back down south, I was like, I'm done with New York. I'm finished. But there's something about when Jesus gets a hold of your heart like he did of mine. And this is why I don't really comprehend slow conversion. I think there's one conversion where Jesus fully wins you. And if you fully understand it, you surrender all. Now, I know sanctification is a process, but I speeded up the process. God, here I am, whatever you want me to do. And when I came and turned myself in, I was facing seven years for an escape charge. You know, and I stood before the judge and she asked, why did you turn yourself in? I said, because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. She said, get this man out of my court. I mean, they put me back in the cell. I was praying to know, and God, what did I do wrong? God, how did I mess this up? They brought me back out, and she said, she just kept looking at me, looking at the paper, looking at me. I kept saying, why is she doing it? And she came out of the mouth, she said, 
I feel compelled, you know, to release you. He said, the man I'm looking at now doesn't even look like the kid, you know, in these, in this paperwork that I'm reading about. And I'm afraid if I send you back to jail, you'll become this person all over again. And I'm happy to say I never let that woman down, never planned to let that judge down. And from that point on, I went after Jesus with all my heart, with all my mind and all my soul. And, uh, and I try to live like that every single day. And, uh, and it's, and it's, and it's a joy, you know, and a lot of it's in the story. I mean, it's on the website, streetgodbook.com. You can read the first chapter for free there. And, um, you know, and it's, it's a compelling story. I wish we had more time to flesh out all the details, but, but that's the beauty of internet and, and on the way home and the great technology that, that you guys are presenting and content to your, your listeners. Let me ask you a little bit about about just criminal justice. I mean, a lot of people are talking about ways that we can improve the system. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we believe strongly as Christians in the rule of law. We believe in, you know, Romans 13 gives the authority to the, to the state to, to do good on behalf of the people. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we, we see a system that um, is, you know, we, we incarcerate more people than any other nation in the world, and it's not really restorative. And so we're seeing, you know, just recidivism rates really high. You know, for someone who who has been on all sides of this issue, uh, what are some things you you would like to see happen uh, in the criminal justice system? Um, I think there has to be a pathway from the criminal justice system into better paying jobs. Mm -hmm. My situation coming out to only getting a job, you know, that wasn't even, you know, covering a sweat a sweatsuit, you know, that was a problem for me. And I think a lot of people come out of jail with a heart to do the right thing, but are not given the opportunity to make any kind of money. So they go back into the life of crime. The world doesn't believe often that people's hearts can be changed. And, uh, you know, there's a popular interview with Hillary Clinton where she says, you know, well, we can change... Uh, uh, legislation, but we can't change hearts. And I'm like, ma'am, you got it wrong. We can change hearts. And I think the gospel is the key that changes the heart. So if we change the hearts and we work out and work with people, even if churches would take on working with people in groups like prison fellowship, I mean, I think we'll see, we'll see a lot of things change uh, from what the situation is now. That's a great word. One of the other interesting things about your biography is that uh, you mentioned that you were nearly aborted uh, as as a baby, and you yeah. know with the Planned Parenthood videos coming out and that sort of the conscience of the country being awakened to really what's happening in these uh, abortion clinics. Yeah. How, how did you feel when when those videos came out? And uh, just maybe talk about that part of your story. Oh man, I I, I felt terrible because you know I I know about Margaret Singer, you know, and I know that, um, you know, she was a part of the Klux Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. And from the genesis, she wanted to, you know, get rid of black babies. Mm -hmm. And Planned Parenthood has done that better than anywhere else. I mean, last week I was um, standing in front of a Planned Parenthood location, praying with some Christians out there, and I was seeing the reason that nobody cares about those babies, unfortunately, because they are mostly African-American babies. And, you know, and women were coming out of there holding their stomachs, tears in their eyes, 
crying. What did I just do? You know, some boyfriends were dragging some people in there. And what was sad was this one was in a predominantly white neighborhood, but they were getting driven in to go and do this thing, you know, where they were killing their own children. And, you know, the media has done a very good job in, in fooling, unfortunately, a lot of Latino and African-Americans that they think it's, it's just the, the fastest way to solve the problem is to, you know, execute uh, their own children. And uh, so we're trying to do our part, which is a very difficult battle, um, but we're trying to do our part to wake people up to that lie. So that's why I believe it was easy to say those things they said. I think, you know, it's a, it's a wicked business to be in. And even all the doctors I talk to say, nobody respects the doctors that go into that field. It's all about the money and they don't care about the people that they're going to do it to. So, so it, it, it's hurtful. And, uh, and I pray that more people will get this message out and that uh, more people will listen because the minute you start to say the issue of pro-life, there are, as well as God-fearing Christians that just turn off the, their earphone. Mm. That's a good word. So you've been in New York City now doing doing ministry. What are some of the challenges of doing urban ministry as you talk to younger pastors and church leaders that are considering church planting or church revitalization in, in, in the city? Uh, one is, I mean, New York City is one of the most expensive cities in the nation. So no matter if you go to the Bronx, which is the poorest uh, borough where we minister right in the heart of the project, um, it still is very expensive to do ministry. Mm. The living cost is high. I mean, most guys have to, you know, be bivocational. Or, you know, some of the, some of the other issues is, you know, getting, um, you know, working, uh, one of the good things, sorry, one of the good things about New York is that the churches, cross denominations, really work together well. Mm-hmm. Now, this separation between the liberals and evangelicals, and or now better termed as orthodox Christians, um, you know, we really work together well. But the liberals still have their kind of camp, and you know, the orthodox Christian evangelicals kind of gather together. But it's so hard here, and it's so tough that we got to link arms and we pray a lot together. So what's really, there's not a lot of bad news, there's a lot of good news. Ministry is really growing in New York City, really thriving through all these church plants. And, uh, and the better that New York can partner with cities outside of New York helps the ministry here really go well, because the city's against us. They tried to kick the church is out of the school. I was on the front line of that battle. You know, they try to raise rents. I mean, it's a lot of dirty things they try to do to um, to, to help the, the, the decrease of churches growing. But overall, uh, God blesses and we find a way to get it done. Last question. What are some of the myths that people might have about doing uh, urban ministry in a city like New York? And perhaps myths about maybe young men that are... Um, going into, you know, that are recruited into the gangs or doing drugs. What are some of those myths, and how can we better, as evangelicals, better do ministry in that context? Um, I think one of, the, one of the biggest myths is that some people feel like, well, how, if I'm white, how can I have an impact in a black community? Or if I'm black, how could I reach Latinos? Or if I'm 
uh, black, how could I reach white people? Um, I, I think, you know, in the urban setting, uh, particularly let's just deal with white coming into my context, it can happen in huge ways. Uh, people want to know really how much you care and how long are you going to be around. And because, uh, you know, I've worked with a little Irish girl named Tara Flynn, who's about five feet, but she has more young people busting in and out of out of her house and her van and her car and, and ministering to them and watching them go from, from learning about Christ, from the projects into college over and over and over again. I mean, we have, I have two co-pastors, a pastor Bill Devlin, who serves all around the world meeting people. He's white, uh, Irish background, but has an impact. I mean, everyone loves him in our community. And uh, in the same, I think it's key that people see your authenticity and your willingness to walk and live and dwell with your people. And I think that's key. I mean, we have great examples of Jim Simula. We have great examples of, you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural churches like mine. Our church is white, black, Latino, and Asian. And we're meeting in the housing project. Because people that come to join us, those that do the best are coming with a mission mindset. Like, okay, I'm going to go in here, but God's going to use me to have an impact. And I think that knocks everything out. And I think the book Street God is an excellent case study because it doesn't stop the conversion, but you'll continue to see how a ministry could grow and flourish in one of the toughest projects in New York City. So it's an excellent case study to get. It's available everywhere. Books are sold. And I think, you know, people, you know, write that. I mean, you can look at the reviews on Amazon for literary excellence and the impact that it has on people. Well, listen, it's been great talking to you, praying for your ministry, grateful for your, your story and what God is doing in your life and doing in New York City through your ministry. And we'll do through the story of this book. And uh, thank you for joining us here on the Way Home Podcast. Oh, thank you, man. It was a joy to be on with you. And, and uh, I just pray God continues to bless your work. In I want to thank Demas Salaberrios for that great conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by sending us an email to wayhome at erlc.com or writing a review on iTunes? Uh, that helps us just spread the word about the podcast. I want to remind you, you can listen to this podcast through iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Signal. You can also find all of our previous episodes on danieldarling.com on the podcast page. Also remember that the winter issue of Light Magazine is out. It can be purchased at erlc.com light or read for free. Uh, you can purchase a print subscription or read it for free online. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen, and scheduling is handled by Marie Delf. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm.